to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. Today, Denver addresses the question, what was Hiram Smith's role in the Restoration? Doctrine and Covenants section 124 has um, a revelation given in January of 1841 uh, to the saints at that point in, um, in Nauvoo offering something to the saints in that day that, um, that is relevant to the history that unfolded thereafter. Beginning at verse 28, the Lord says through Joseph, For there is not a place on earth that he, he here being the Lord, God, that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you, or which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. Skipping to verse 31. But I command you, all ye my saints, to build a house unto me. See, this commandment was unto everyone who at that point claimed to be a saint. All of them, every one of them was put under the equal burden to build a house unto me. And I grant unto you, all of you, a sufficient time to build a house unto me. And during this time, your baptisms shall be acceptable unto me. But behold, at the end of this appointment, your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable unto me. And if you do not these things at the end of the appointment, you shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord your God. It's interesting that in verse 31, it says your baptisms, and in verse 32, it says your baptisms for your dead, which suggests that after verse 31, if we fail in verse 32, that our baptisms will continue to be acceptable, but our vicarious work would not, and the church would then be um, rejected. If you skip to 34, talking about this proposed temple to be constructed, for therein are the keys of the holy priesthood ordained that ye may receive honor and glory. Honor being um, the promise from God into the afterlife, respecting what you can um, expect to receive from God as an oath and as a covenant. Glory being intelligence or knowledge and understanding, light and truth things that were not comprehended, but which God hoped to have the saints at that point comprehend. Well, he gives to us in this same revelation a measuring stick by which we can determine if we satisfy the requirements that the Lord has set forth. And the measuring stick is this, beginning in verse 44. Well, verse 43, probably, uh, we should begin. And ye shall build it on the place where you have contemplated building it, for that is the spot which I have chosen for you to build it. So they contemplated it, the Lord approved it, and this would become a spot where the, the, the Nabu temple was to be constructed. If you labor with all your might, I will consecrate that spot that it shall be made holy. And if my people will hearken unto my voice and unto the voice of my servants whom I have appointed to lead my people, 
Behold, verily I say unto you, they shall not be moved out of their place. They being the people. They being those that he had chosen to lead them. They being, in this instance, the prophet Joseph Smith and the one who would be appointed to receive priesthood and be appointed to hold the sealing power in this revelation, Hiram Smith. The one who was designated to be the successor to Joseph Smith in the event of Joseph's death and the one whom the Lord would take first, Hiram. Joseph died knowing that his successor had first fallen. Joseph was the only one who could appoint a successor. He first designated David Whitmer. In 1835, Joseph organized the complementary presidency in Zion. The president was David Whitmer with counselors W.W. Phelps and John Whitmer. This made David Whitmer the backup church president if Joseph died. Four days after organizing the Missouri Zion presidency, Joseph explained, if he should now be taken away that he had accomplished the great work which the Lord had laid before him. He wrote in his journal the following year, 1835, that the church's permanent foundation was assured because of the Missouri president who would take over if he, Joseph, were taken. Unfortunately, in 1838, Whitmer resigned as president in Zion, joined the dissenters, and contributed to the agitation that resulted in the Mormon War. Whitmer later organized his own competing church. Presumably an active dissenter who refused to participate in the church for six years was disqualified as Joseph's successor when Joseph was killed. A second successor was appointed in 1841. Hiram Smith was given the same status as Joseph by revelation. Although Hiram was faithful, he died moments before Joseph, and that left the successor unidentified. This is all the more unfortunate because Joseph alone had the power to appoint a successor. There's a revelation that was given in January of 1841, the last lengthy revelation given while Joseph was alive. Well, his last, his last vision, that's a secondhand account, still reliable because it was recorded so quickly after. And that, that contains, um, William Smith is going to replace um, Hiram as a counselor to Joseph and, and, the revelation in January of 1841 records, and again, verily I say unto you, let my servant William be appointed, ordained, and anointed as counselor unto my servant Joseph in the room of my servant Hiram, that my servant Hiram may take the office of priesthood and patriarch, which was appointed unto him by his father by blessing and also by right, that from henceforth he shall hold the keys of the patriarchal blessings upon the heads of all my people that whosoever he blesses shall be blessed, whosoever he curses shall be cursed, that whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and from this time forth I appoint unto him that he may be a prophet and a seer and a revelator unto my church as well as my servant Joseph, 
that he may act in concert also with my servant Joseph, and that he shall receive counsel from my servant Joseph, who shall show unto him the keys whereby he may ask and receive and be crowned with the same blessing and glory and honor and priesthood and gifts of the priesthood that were once put upon him that was my servant, Oliver Cowdery, that my servant Hiram may bear record of the things which I shall show unto him, that his name may be had in honorable remembrance from generation to generation forever and ever. So Hiram was put into a position that was once occupied by Oliver to stand with Joseph possessing the ability to ask and receive. So that the channel through which you can know and understand what God wants or intends for people is open as the mechanism to save souls. Because at the end of this, it's, its sole purpose is to, is to save souls. It talks about him and his um, name had an honorable remembrance from generation to generation. Only descendants of Hiram occupied the position of um, uh, the presiding patriarch of the church um, until 1979 when Albert G. Smith was made emeritus, but he still signed everything as... uh, (laughs) patriarch to the church, and he still kept an office in the church office building. There's um, some eagerness that uh, Father Hiram had to get busy before the Book of Mormon was even done, preaching repentance because he believed it. And uh, the Lord held held Hiram back. If you go to Doctrine and Covenants section 11, beginning at verse 13, there's a revelation given to Hiram that says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I'll impart unto you of my spirit, which shall enlighten your mind, which shall fill your soul with joy. And then shall ye know, or by this ye shall know, all things whatsoever ye desire of me, which are pertaining unto things of righteousness and faith believing in me that ye shall receive. But I command you that you need not suppose that you're called to preach until you are called. Wait a little longer until you shall have my word, my rock, my church, and my gospel that you may know of a surety my doctrine. See, Hiram was being told, it's good to be eager, but don't go out and try to preach something because you're not yet qualified. You don't have enough knowledge in order to do so. Likewise, Adam and Eve, not because the Lord held back and told them, don't do it, don't do it, but because the circumstances of their lives did not prepare them to do it until there were generations already alive on the earth. Then they were given the gifts that were necessary in order to begin their preaching. Hiram was told in verse 21, Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then shall your tongue be loosed. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God into the convincing of men. But now hold your peace. Study my word, which hath gone forth among the children of men. And also study my word, which shall come forth among the children of men, or that which is now translating... Yea, until you have obtained all that which I granted to the children of men in this generation, and then shall all things be added thereto. Hiram Smith, who would eventually become co-president with Joseph. Hiram Smith, to whom the, the Lord would command that he be ordained not only a priesthood, but to become the one possessing the sealing power over the church. Hiram Smith, who would be the successor to Joseph, though he was killed before Joseph. 
Hiram Smith, who was the prophet of the church, and Joseph rebuked the church because they weren't giving heed to Hiram's words. Hiram Smith, whose letter to the church ought to be in the Doctrine and Covenants because he was a president and he issued a general epistle admonishing people. Hiram Smith, whose name is omitted from the list of church presidents, even though it should be there. Hiram Smith is told by the Lord, don't go out and start preaching yet. You need to learn something first. You need to be qualified first. In the revelation to Hiram given in 1829, and in the lives of Adam and Eve, God is in no great hurry to get people running around uh, preaching before they're qualified. There's this comment that Joseph Smith made. He said, I am learned and know more than all the world put together. The Holy Ghost does anyhow, and he is within me and comprehends more than all the world, and I will associate myself with him. That's in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith at page 350. This is what qualified Adam and Eve to go declare repentance to their children. This is what qualified them to know the truth of all things and have the wisdom with which to impart it so that they could persuade their children to believe in Christ. This is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, to be competent in teaching your children, must first have the Holy Ghost as your guide. Then, once you have that, you ought to have command of the scriptures just as Hiram was told to learn what's in them then you're qualified to go and to teach um, your children. And you have an obligation to do that. Children are the means to preserve Zion. Without the conversion of children, um, Zion has no chance of surviving. When you go to the story in Moses chapter 5 and you read about... um, Adam and Eve and their posterity. Adam and Eve have children, and the children are seduced by uh, Satan and persuaded to be led astray. Then they have a son to whom the birthright was going to be granted because he appeared to be interested in the things of God, so much so that he was willing to offer sacrifice. That son, the older one, was named Cain. And the next son born was Abel. But Abel was more attentive to the things of God. Both Cain and Abel offered sacrifices to the Lord. However, the Lord approved the sacrifice of Abel. At this point in the history of man, if that rite of priesthood passed, from Adam to Abel, it would have displaced Cain. Cain sought for the right whereunto he would be the one to hold that priesthood. He was the one who wanted it. And the first murder that was committed was committed against the one who would inherit the birthright, done precisely for the purpose of 
eliminating the posterity of Abel so that Abel having no posterity could not be the one through whom the birthright would be perpetuated. When Cain sought to take what God had instead appointed his younger brother to receive, Cain was deprived of the right of priesthood. And it passed over him and his descendants so that Cain did not obtain the birthright. And Eve conceived and she bore a replacement son and that son, Seth, became the one through whom the promises would be given. And Cain was driven out from the people. Now you have to understand that this is in Moses chapter six. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his own image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and they begat many sons and daughters. Adam begat many sons and daughters. But the son named Seth was the one to whom this priesthood went because there is only one appointed. Seth lived 105 years and he begat Enos and prophesied in all his days and taught his son Enos in the ways of God. Wherefore, Enos prophesied also. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat many sons and daughters. So Seth begat Enos and many sons and daughters. But the right of the lineage and the priesthood went from Adam to Seth to Enos. This is a description of that priesthood which was briefly restored in one person, Joseph, to be given to Hiram because it goes to the oldest righteous descendant. And when it was restored through Joseph Smith, Hiram was not yet qualified. But when Hiram became qualified, by January of 1841, in the revelation given then, Hiram is the one to whom the birthright went, being the eldest and being the one who was qualified. This is why it was necessary for Hiram to die before Joseph so that in this dispensation, Joseph and Hiram can stand at the head. Because if Hiram had not died first, but Joseph had died first, Joseph would have died without having had the passing. Well, notice that Seth had many sons and daughters. And then you get to the next, Enos. He lived um, and begat Canaan. 
Enos um, also has many sons and daughters, but Canaan was the one upon whom the birthright. And this follows all the way down, all the way down. You can read it in Moses chapter six, how it descends through the line. This pattern repeats over and over again. As I'm talking about this, I'm making reference to a diagram that appeared first in the millennial star on January the 15th of 1847, but which you can see in the um, Joseph Smith papers on page 298, uh, where they reproduce the, uh, the same diagram of, um, of the kingdom of God. The only difference being that I have filled in the names on this chart so that you can see where the names go. Now, we get to the point in the history of the world in which after the days of Shem, who was renamed Melchizedek, people fell into iniquity. They fell into iniquity and they lost the birthright. There was no continuation of this. It was broken by an apostasy and it had to be restored again, which ought to give all of us great hope because Abraham sought for this. He sought for a restoration of the kingdom of God. He sought for a restoration of this, which only one man on the earth can hold at a time. Abraham chapter one, verse two, finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness and possess a greater knowledge and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, desiring to receive instructions and keep the commandments of God. I became a rightful heir a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. When you are in possession of that, you have no problem asking God and getting an answer. It is the right belonging to the fathers. After a period of apostasy and the break of this line, Abraham received it by adoption. Therefore, this power has the ability to cure the break. This covenant making through God has the ability to restore the family of God even when wicked men kill in order to destroy it. Even when a substitute needs to be made, even when the fathers turn from their righteousness, yet God is able to cause it to persist. And Joseph Smith was doing something which no one else either understood or had the right to perpetuate. This continued through 10 generations from um, Adam to Melchizedek, but through Abraham, it continued five generations. And it appeared again once on the earth in a single generation that included Joseph and his brother Hiram. Now even the mockery of it has come to an end because there is no such thing 
as a perpetuation in honorable mention of the descendants of Hiram Smith in the office of patriarch in the church. There have been many signs that have been given by God that he was about to do something new from the time of the death of Joseph Smith till today. All that was left at the end was for a witness to be appointed to come and to say, it now has come to an end. In the last talk that I gave in the 10 lecture series, I said, a witness has now come and I'm him. It has come to an end. One of the signs of it having come to an end was the passing of Albert Smith. There are many other signs that have been given, if you're looking for them. You can see them all along the line. In a recent talk back in March uh, in your home, I believe it was, on plural marriage, you said on page 39 of the transcription, there have been many signs given by God that he was about to do something new from the time of the death of Joseph Smith until today. All that was left at the end was for a witness to be appointed, to come to declare now it has come to an end. In the last talk in the 10 lecture series, quoting you, I said, the witness has now come. I am he. It has come to an end with something new now begun. One of the signs of it having come to an end was the passing of Elgin Smith. Question, will you elaborate on the significance of the passing of Patriarch Elder G. Smith on April 4th, 2013? And how or why we should take this as a sign that something has come to an end. In particular, what has come to an end? You are declaring you are a witness of an end time event. That seems vital. What is this event? How are you a witness? Why is it important for us to recognize this event? And how, how should we or how do you think God expects us to acknowledge such an event in our own lives? Mm. Well, in a word, um, the fullness of the Gentiles ending, one of the last signs of that was the passing of Eldred Smith in 2013, and with him the office of patriarch to the church. That office was never well understood. And I've never been told it was necessary to fully explain the significance, so I've left most of the details unexplained. But to what I've said already, I would add the following. The LDS Church makes enthusiastic claims about their priesthood, and those claims would be much more accurate if they were dialed back some if they were considerably more modest. They claim to have Melchizedek priesthood, which has the following list of things associated with it when it is described for us uh, the first time in scripture in Genesis chapter 14 of the Joseph Smith translation. The authority to break mountains, divide the seas, dry up waters, turn waters out of their course, put at defiance the armies of nations, divide the earth, break every band, stand in the presence of God. 
I pointed out that it's not necessary to do all these things, but any one of them is enough to show that the authority was present. But this priesthood does have signs. The ordination of Hiram in 1841 was, and I'm reading from the scripture, to quote the office of priesthood and patriarch, unquote. That's in section 124, verse 91. What was intended with that ordination was so that, and again, I'm reading from the same revelation, quote, his name may be had in honorable remembrance from generation to generation forever and ever, unquote. That's in 124, verse 96. There was a colorable claim to priesthood while Hiram and his descendants remained in the office. That ended. So far as the LDS church was concerned, it was good riddance because they found the office was troublesome. It was not part of the 12, yet claimed the status of prophet, seer, and revelator while it was part of the general authorities. It was uncontrollable because only descendants of Hiram were the holders. That gave them independence, and leaders wanted the office to be discarded, and it has been. There are many prophecies that foretell the Gentiles will reject their invitation to have the fullness of the gospel. Christ said that this would happen in 3 Nephi 16.10. There have been many signs Christ's prophecies were fulfilled. Only one thing now remained to be done. God needed to send a witness to be the final required sign sent by God to declare his intention to begin something new. The signs include, but are not limited to, the condemnation of the church in 1832, which was DNC 84, 54 to 58. The expulsion from Missouri that happened uh, and was explained in DNC 101, 1 and 2. The forced winter exodus from Nauvoo, the suffering during and following the exodus, the afflictions, judgments, and wrath of God at the saints, all of which was foretold in DNC 124, 44 to 45. Their pride, lying, deceit, hypocrisy, murders, priestcrafts, and whoredoms, all of which Christ foretold in that 3 Nephi 16.10 verse. There has been inquisitorial abuse of the saints once they were isolated in the wilderness. As part of the Mormon Reformation, the population was interrogated to root out heresy, sin, and to root out disbelief with the threat of blood atonement, which was slaying a sinner to save them from hell, then being taught. There were mass murders. Over 200 non-Mormons were executed at Mountain Meadows to vindicate an oath to avenge the death of the prophets. Originally, that was aimed at those who slew Joseph and Hiram, but Parley Pratt's death, news of Parley Pratt's death and slaying arrived just at the time that the um, Mountain Meadows crew was going through Utah And since Parley Pratt was regarded as a prophet by the saints, it included him also. Brigham Young traditionally has not been directly implicated. 
But everyone, including the LDS Church assistant historian Richard Turley, admits that his rhetoric during the Mormon Reformation, coupled with the Temple Oath of Vengeance that Brigham Young added to the rights of the Temple, and just as an aside, an oath of vengeance for slaying the prophets could not have been put there by Joseph Smith because he and Hiram Smith had not yet been slain. And so the oath of vengeance was necessarily the product of the mind of Brigham Young, but it was part of the temple rhetoric. And everyone admits that the blood atonement and the oath of vengeance and the Mormon Reformation and Brigham Young's fiery rhetoric and Jedediah Grant's um, fiery additions on top of that were responsible for creating the environment in which the the slaying took place. Other signs are contradictions in what are called fundamental teachings. For example, plural marriage was once required for exaltation. Now it will result in excommunication. Ordaining blacks would once forfeit all church priesthood. Now it is unequivocally condemned as false. Adopting a well-paid professional ministerial class. Um, in Alma, um, the Nehor incident included priests, Nehor advocated priests should not labor with their own hands, but they should get supported with the believer's money. And this was uh, something the Book of Mormon condemned of being guilty of priestcraft. Alma, on the other hand, ordained priests in Mosiah 18.18, and he instructed them that they must labor with their own hands for their own support. In Mosiah 18.24, quote, and he commanded them that the priests whom he had ordained should labor with their own hands for their support, unquote. King Mosiah adopted this standard as the law in Mosiah 24.4 and 5, quote, that they should let no pride nor haughtiness disturb their peace, that every man should esteem his neighbor as himself, laboring with their own hands for their support, yea, and all their priests and teachers should labor with their own hands for their support. In all cases, save it were in sickness or in much want. And doing these things, they did abound in the grace of God, unquote. See, I could raise money if I wanted to. I could raise a lot of money if I wanted to. And if I raise money off the religion I preach, I could get a lot more done. Instead, I labor with my own hands and I work nights, evenings, weekends. The amount of work that is going into the book that will come out next that includes not just me, but my wife and practically every spare moment that we have involves enormous sacrifice, but it has exactly the effect. We should esteem our neighbor as ourselves, laboring with our own hands we, we should not think that we are better than anyone. And if you take money from someone in order to uh, advance your religious purpose, the mere act of doing that creates an inequality. It creates an arrogance. It creates, it removes the burden of sacrifice. It removes the humiliation of having to um, lose sleep and to fret and to worry about things. And, and to face um, an uphill battle in everything that you do in order to please God. But you can't please God by taking advantage of yourself, your fellow man. 
There have been changes to the ordinance. Isaiah 24, 5 warned that the earth is also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Those changes include the most single radical change to the temple endowment in 1990. In 2005, they eliminated washings and anointings. Before the January 2005 changes, washings and anointings were literal. The change made them only symbolic thereafter. Um, that has that has significance, and I leave it to people to query why it has significance. I mean, there was a reason why Christ was anointed preliminary to his death uh, by the woman that blessed and, and anointed him, um, and it was to preserve him into the resurrection. Now we don't do that. Um, there's a quest for popularity. Gordon B. Hinckley was the original employee and secretary for the what was then called Radio Publicity and Missionary Literature Committee in 1934, the predecessor to the Public Communications Department. By the time he became the 15th LDS Church President, his work had hardwired public relations into the institution. Another problem has been the centrally controlled, tightly correlated rejection of teachings, which David O. McKay predicted would lead the church into apostasy. And I discussed this in Passing the Heavenly Gift. You can read about it there if anyone's interested. The history of Gentile Mormonism has been a long downward path. I laid that out in Passing the Heavenly Gift. The Gentiles have walked away from the light and increasingly embraced darkness and foolish trust in men. All Mormon sects are now ruled by traditions contrary to the scriptures and commandments of God. They are asleep and cannot be awakened. God is now leading something new and left the leaders of all the various Mormon sects to find their own way. Emma Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and William Marks said that without Joseph Smith, there was no church. That, that comment was preserved by William Clayton in his um, diary in August of 1844, because to William Clayton, uh, that was offensive. The election had taken place on August the 8th. And so when Emma Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and William Mark said, without Joseph Smith, there's no church, he recorded it in his journal because he thought that was, that was um, inappropriate and offensive. But they were right. Following Joseph's death, there was a complete overthrow of the church by the Quorum of the Twelve. The Quorum of the Twelve substituted themselves in the place of the equal distribution of power established by revelation. <coughs> the First Presidency <coughs> and the Quorum of the Twelve are supposed to be equal in authority. That's in 107 verse 24. Joseph never moved a single apostle into the First Presidency. They were independently equal bodies. Likewise, the quorum of 70 was equal with the 12. That's in 107, 25, and 26. And therefore should be equal with the first presidency also. The standing high councils of Zion were also equal in authority. That's in 107, 36, and 37. All the keys, to the extent that there were any, were and are held 100% by the First Presidency, 100% by the 12, 100% by the Quorum of the 70, and 100% by the High Councils. 
There was no primacy in the 12 when originally organized by Joseph Smith, according to the revelation. In the years before Joseph's death, the 12 were away from Nauvoo doing missionary work as their calling required. Joseph spent his final three years in close association with the Nauvoo High Council. As the Nauvoo High Council minutes reflect, following Joseph's and Hiram's deaths, Emma remarked, quote, now as the 12 have no power with regard to the government of the church in the stakes of Zion, but the high council have all power, so it follows that on removal of the first president, the office would devolve upon the president of the high council in Zion. The 12 were aware of these facts, but acted differently, unquote. Emma was the wife of Joseph Smith, and I know that she's taken a lot of bad press from LDS Mormonism. And at one time, I enjoyed that same opinion. But these are comments that she made in the immediate aftermath of Joseph Smith's death. None of the equality of these four different bodies survived Brigham Young. When Brigham Young assumed control, all equality was destroyed and the church became an oligarchy run by the 12. This continues from Young until today. Now the senior apostle automatically becomes the church president an unscriptural and unwise system for consolidating power. Equality among many has been replaced with the dictatorship of one. Here's another quote. Emma bore testimony to Lucy Masur that Mormonism was true as it came forth from the servant of the Lord, Joseph Smith, but said the 12 had made bogus of it, unquote. Bogus is another word for counterfeit. Bogus was always a reference to counterfeit money. Joseph cautioned the saints about violating God's trust. As he put it, quote, his word will go forth in these last days in purity. For if Zion will not purify herself so as to be approved in all things in his sight, he will seek another people. For his work will go on until Israel is gathered. And they who will not hear his voice must expect to feel his wrath. Unquote. That's in the teachings, page 18. To the same effect, during the Mormon Reformation, Heber C. Kimball said, quote, we receive this priesthood in power and authority. If we make a bad use of the priesthood, do you not see that the day will come when God will reckon with us and he will take it from us and give it to those who will make better use of it? Unquote. That's in the Journal of Discourses, volume 6, page 125. George Albert Smith said essentially the same thing. Brigham Young said essentially the same thing. We should expect, <coughs> excuse me, God's house to be ordered around only one principle, repentance. When the pride of a great organization replaces repentance, the heavens withdraw, and when they do, amen to that portion of God's house. The restoration through Joseph Smith will always remain, even if God chooses to order it differently before his return. It is his to do with as he determines best. He's now sent me as a witness. The passing of Eldred Smith was a moment in time that reflects the cumulative effect of a lot of decisions, including and beginning with the initial overthrow of the government of the church by the 12 at the passing of Joseph and Hiram. 
culminating in the final overthrow of the priesthood itself by the death of the discarded Albert Smith and the discontinuation of the authority that was supposed to have been kept in honorable remembrance from generation to generation, God will bestow that authority again and it will go forward, but it will go forward without these organizational pretenders that amass wealth and practice priestcraft. At the beginning of the restoration, while Joseph was still alive, there was an abortive attempt to get founded what would necessarily need to be reestablished in order for there to be Zion. In a sermon that he delivered in um, August of 1843, he said that the fullness did not exist in the church. If it did, he wasn't aware of it because the fullness required a man to become a king and a priest. Joseph Smith was made a king by anointing the following month on September the 28th of 1843. The month before his anointing, he explained no one in the church held the fullness of the priesthood. Quote, for any person to have the fullness of that priesthood must be a king and a priest. A person may be anointed king and priest before they receive their kingdom. Uh, Wilfred Woodruff recorded that in his journal on August the 6th of 1843. The following month, then, 28th of September, 1843, Joseph was anointed a king and a priest. And the month after that, on October the 8th of 1843, Hiram Smith was likewise ordained to be a king unto God. The foregoing are excerpts taken from Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number eight, entitled A Broken Heart, given in Las Vegas, Nevada, on July 25, 2014. The presentation of Denver's paper entitled Was There an Original, given at the Sunstone Symposium on July 29, 2016. A fireside talk entitled The Holy Order, given in Bountiful, Utah, on October 29, 2017. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number nine, entitled Marriage and Family, given in St. George, Utah, on July 26, 2014. A fireside talk on plural marriage, given in Sandy, Utah, on March 22, 2015. A Q&A session entitled A Visit with Denver Snuffer, held on May 13, 2015. And his talk entitled Zion Will Come, given near Moab, Utah, on April 10, 2016. In addition, Denver has written extensively about this topic. If you are interested in learning more, please review the following blog posts, among others. Hiram Smith, posted July 17, 2012. Hiram Smith, Part 2, posted July 18, 2012. Hiram Smith, Part 3, posted July 19, 2012. Things Now Underway, posted December 25, 2014. All or Nothing, 4, posted November 2, 2016. And Cursed, Denied Priesthood, posted January 7, 2018. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. A complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers are available to download free of charge at restorationarchives.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. 
We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.